Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Spear Factor. Special guest this week, Mr. Mark Healy from Hawaii. Uh, Mark is an incredible spear fisherman, big wave surfer, bow hunter, you name it, he can do it. He lives and breathes sustainability, and... uh, Really excited to speak with him. Very humble guy. And I hope you enjoy the show. We cover everything from the differences in the surf industry and the diving industry to conservation, uh, to hunting and gear and diving with great whites and everything in between. So uh, let's get on with it. And as always, we got to give a big shout out to our sponsors, Kamira Spearfishing and Benners of the Side Slip. I personally use this product quite a bit and I believe in it. It's a really, really good product to have in your tools, uh, your little arsenal there for hunting. It's basically replaces the slip tips, making it possible for you to hunt around rocks. It's a patent pinning design and it's a Southern California company. Um, if you go to the website, uh, camaraspearfishing.com, that's K-I-M-E-R-A, spearfishing.com, and decide you want to purchase if you put in the promo code SPEARFACTOR, one word, SPEARFACTOR, you'll get an additional uh, 5% off on your purchase. Uh, try it and uh, let Rob at uh, SPEARFACTOR know what you think and uh, constantly trying to make the product better, which uh, that's what I like about the company. So uh, that's why uh, we're working together. And also, another sponsor is Hot Rod Spear Guns, Paul Rodriguez. Uh, I've used Paul's guns, hunting dogs down in Micronesia and also down in Baja. And I got to say, you can't beat that gun for the price. It's an amazing gun as well as the breakaway gun that he just developed is incredible it's a true blue water breakaway gun that is smaller or roughly about the same size as a set of fins. Um, check out Hot Rod Spear Guns at hotrodspearguns.com. 
Other sponsors include Los Bigotes, the mustaches apparel company. I've worked with them for a few years now. Really good group of dudes. Check out their website, losbigotes.com, and see the shirts and hats and uh, Hawaiian shirts. Good stuff they got. And our last sponsor is One Drop Spearfishing. Basically, an environmentally minded group of guys that love to dive, live and breathe it, but their whole focus is feeding friends and family and enjoying their time in the water. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, solid group of guys. And uh, check out their website, One Drop Spearfishing. Check them out on YouTube, One Drop Spearfishing. And if you'd like to uh, sponsor Spear Factor Podcasts, feel free. Uh, you can go ahead and shoot me a note on the website, spearfactor.com. Thank you. Anyways, I'll get started officially, man. I don't want to keep wasting All good. time or anything. Um, so I guess the first question, you know, I, you know, obviously you're from Hawaii. I listened to you with the Aki's podcast, which was really cool. You know, your dad kind of got you into it. It wasn't really a question. Um, how did you decide to, like, what point in time did you decide to, like, really, or did it happen gradually, kind of just, like, push everything to the next level? I've always, I, I think it's kind of like uh, my nature, I guess. You know, I, I, I get bored quickly and I don't, um, I guess I'm not very sentimental about like accomplishments or anything the, to where like, I, I'm never like, okay, that, that was, I'm always just looking at the next thing. I'm like, okay, so what's next? Uh, what haven't I done? Like, how can I challenge myself to do something different or understand this better? So I think it, I mean, since the first day my dad put a mask on me, I've always kind of been that way, <laughs> which was like, I was yeah. probably like three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like my, my friends, uh, said, well, I live on an Island. So what else is there to do? You know, like my buddies that I'm like, how did you get started in spearfishing? They're like, yeah, but like, that's it. That's all there is to do. Kid on the North shore of Wahoo. It's like, you have waves all winter, but summertime's flat. So right. what are you going to do? You know, I still played sports and stuff like that, but um, to me, it was just so exciting getting a piece of wilderness. You know, you always have that with the ocean. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I kind of totally relate as far as you say you're never satisfied, basically, right? Like, mm -hmm. I I think that's what makes people go 100% and do great things like what you're doing is that you you know the type a personality i guess you're just never satisfied you're always looking for the next thing and it's like it kind of leads me to my next question because it puts a, a pretty big burden sometimes on your family life because <laughs> mm -hmm. your wife's like am i not enough because you're always wanting to go do, you know um how do you kind of you know especially with that being your job how do you try to balance that your family life and then being a professional surfer professional diver yeah, that's that's what it is, really. It's balance. Um, we we don't buy any kind of meat from stores or anything. So if food's getting low, I go spear fishing or I go do a bow hunt or something. So it's like it has a very nuts and bolts benefit to the household. And then um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I guess. I'm a professional surfer, but I do a lot of other things like the value, I guess, or how the companies I work with 
value what I give back is kind of a holistic view of water oriented stuff. So it all, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Anyway, that's my argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. That's, uh, I totally understand that. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, I got a whole freezer full of food. Like if, that's why I guess goes along with being selective. Like I don't try to, um, you know, when you go out diving, I'm usually one of those guys that just has like one fish in mind. And if I see it cool, I'll take it. If I don't, then I just swam around in the kelp forest for the day. And it was pretty awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah, it all, that's my biggest thing for my wife is saying like, well, we're getting low on food. Let me go diving again. You know, <laughs> it works. Makes sense. Um, yeah, it's a solid argument. Um, and <laughs> So, like, you mentioned some of the groups you work with. Like, what are your main projects you're doing right now? Well, um, I got all kinds of projects, actually. So, uh, something that we're about to launch is uh, I'm doing it with the website, The Inertia. And it's Mark uh -huh. Healy's Guide to Heavy Water. So, we filmed a lot of stuff. And basically, it's, it's kind of like almost like one of those master class formats. And... Um, going through like the mindset, the preparation, um, making a game plan and, uh, training diet, all of that stuff. But trying to share what's taken me 30 years to learn the hard way with people so they can kind of fast forward their learning process. So that's going to be coming out in the next couple weeks, it looks like. Um, and then also next week I'm going to be launching a YouTube channel. So it's actually like got some good spearfishing stuff for at least the, the first four episodes. So that's going to have, um, just, it's going to be strike missions with Mark Healy. So, um, it's just heading out to where the waves are or the fish are and island hopping and traveling, um, and, uh, some inf informational stuff. So basically whatever I get asked on Instagram the most, I'm, I'm going to try to cover and give people some insight. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you were, uh, doing some conservation stuff too, right? Like projects you were doing things like that with. Yeah. I'm kind of like stick and move as far as con conservation stuff. So I've worked with like shark tagging and tracking in the past. Um, I try to work with, uh, conservation nonprofits and other nonprofits like waves for water and stuff like that kind of like on a situation by situation basis to me in my opinion i think that most nonprofits especially environmental ones are a total scam like you look at these things and you know it, the amount of bureaucracy and red tape and how much people pay themselves at some of these things is a joke i think and so I just, whenever I have the ability to funnel some funds or assets or shed some light on any one thing, I really look at like, okay, how is this physically going to affect a change? Like, I'm not going to go fund something that like, or, or help push something that's like, oh, artwork's going to change the world. Like, no, I want to see a beach that has 15 less tons of trash on it when we're done with this. Those are the things that I'm attracted to. So kind of like uh, one degree of separation, like you're more like hands on as far as like, I want to see it rather than 
pay money and and like how someone would donate to like Greenpeace or something and just say, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing the right thing, you know? Right. Yeah. I want to see. I I want to see. Um. Basically. Uh. I mean. I feel like conservation things almost have to be like. You have to have a good pitch for a project. The same way as if you're going to go get funds from a company, like say. I want to do this expedition and I want to film it. Here's the pitch. Can I get some funds to help? Like, I think that information should be provided and it should be in, in detail of what people want to accomplish with the help that they're getting, you know, not just a, a drop in the ocean and it, you don't know where those assets went at the end of the day. <clears throat> right. I think, you know, it's funny too, with social media, I think you're you're totally right on the money with a lot of the nonprofit stuff. It's like, oh, we might make a profit this year. Let me pay myself some more so that we won't make a profit. Like, it just seems super shady. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it gets so shady. And uh, it's just, um, if you don't mind, like, what are some companies that you work for that you feel like are pretty good um, uh, companies, I guess, as far as conservation goes? Or do you have one company... So I try to, I try to, for the most part, to stick to um, local projects because, you know, I, I, I really believe, you know, I'm down to help all kinds of stuff, right? But I'm a big believer in um, that phrase, you tend to the part of the garden you can reach. So if everybody is tending to what's in front of them and not trying to take on the world's problems and boil the ocean all at once, I think we can that's a far more effective approach. Um, so, uh, Nakamakai is, uh, they, they take youth in Hawaii and introduce them to the ocean and it's, it's a really good organization. So I just bought a, a bunch of dive masks for them because I, that's like one of my pet peeves is like people being introduced to diving or the underwater world with bad masks. <laughs> Because it's like if you have a you put a, a fogging mask that's leaking on a kid, the odds of them giving it a second chance is like so small. And I feel like so many people have a bad first experience because it's claustrophobic and it's weird enough already. You don't need a leaking mask. So like Nakamakai is a great organization. They work with all kinds of youth. They work a lot with youth on the west side of the island, which is like very low income area. And some of these kids are, you know, they're homeless. So how are they going to feed themselves? Like if you can, I mean, the idea is through that is like, if you can empower somebody to like be able to feed themselves when they're homeless in Hawaii, then you check off one thing off the list that they have to worry about, you know, them and their family. Like then they can worry right. about getting themselves out of the situation afterwards. But if you're always worried about where your next meal is going to come from, um, it's hard to make any progress. So Nakamakai is a, a great one. The uh, Hawaii Junior Lifeguards is one I try to help out a bit. Um, uh, Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Um, I did a, a, a signature watch with Braemont, which is a company out of the UK. And they're cool enough to, through the sales of that, donate $10,000 for a beach cleanup on the island of Molokai. Because, it, you know, it's an area on the windward side where a lot of open ocean, you know, fishing, commercial fishing trash, just like nets and all kinds of crap just pile up and it's hard to get out there and costly. So 
I thought that was a really cool way to spend the money. It's like something that's not going to be taken care of by the state and has to be taken care of in another way. So funds went there. Um, and uh, I think I actually I mean, heard you. I heard you talk about that on Joe Rogan. I think about that part of the coastline on Molokai that gets all this shit just seems to filter right in there. Yeah, and and Lanai too. Um, they might have been discussing that, but. Um, yeah, on all of our windward coastlines, it's we're getting all the stuff from Asia. It's not trash from this island. It's very apparent that it's all the, the kind of same fishing gear that got thrown off a boat and shampoo bottles and stuff that you just don't find on store shelves here, but you see all the time when you go to Asia. Yeah, so um, with all this stuff, like you, you – you know, you're in diving and you're in surfing, obviously, like, um, and you work with both companies on both ends of the spectrum as far as diving and, sur and surfing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like uh, that there's a, a big difference between the two cultures, like with divers and surfers? I mean, most of us are the same. We do the same thing. But as far as mm -hmm. like the industry itself. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a difference. Um, the dive companies operate far more like mom and pops, even if they aren't anymore. There's kind of like a pervasive mom and pop mentality that kind of, I think, inhibits growth a lot in that there's, there's kind of stuck in a lot of ways of, of thinking and, and as far as like messaging and imagery and even reinvesting in the business to make it grow past a certain point there's a lot of hesitancy always so um yeah i and and believe i i, I don't know all the spearfishing industry and dive industry as a whole like super well but that's my take on it and the surf industry of all well, the surf industry has got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel so <laughs> yeah that's, well that's the reason why i asked you that yeah, the reason why I asked you that specifically is like you're one of the few guys that have kind of taken both of them up to the top level, so to speak, that, you know, you're pretty immersed in both of them. So mm -hmm. I always I kind of wanted to get your opinion because like I have my own opinions, too. Um, like I, I love surfing, but to be honest with you, like I can't stand the culture sometimes like <laughs> of like being a type A personality, like I don't necessarily like. I don't know. It seems like I just wish surfing was a little more welcoming in the sense that like, I um, mean, I understand localism, I'm not even talking about localism really, but just the overall vibe of like, yeah, it's like a cool, cool guy. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's so but lame that, to me. I don't want to see, I, I owe so much to the surf industry and I have so many great friends that are in the surf industry and I'm still kind of involved with it in a way even though um, most of the brands I work with aren't surf industry brands. Um, but there's an interesting thing. I mean, like surfing came from Hawaii, right? And you look at what, what it was like with the, the Kapu system, which is like a rigid, essentially cast system. And there is real repercussions for breaking these different things. Like for instance, men and women couldn't eat together women couldn't eat bananas like there's certain fish only chiefs could eat there's a ton of different rules but surfing in that kapu system was 
pretty much the only activity where commoners and the chief class could intermingle. And women were looked at as like some of the best surfers. So it was like this incredibly like, it was the opposite. It was a, uh, a lack of hierarchy, you know, it was a free place. Whereas it got interesting as surfing got uh, introduced to other parts of the world, it, everybody put their different interpretation on it. And so the interesting thing is, is what a lot of what we think is surf culture is just industry culture. That's not surfing. It's people putting their spin on it and selling product. So, I mean, I don't want the surfing industry to crash, but as far as like surfing as a whole being uh, something that's beautiful and accessible to everybody, the industry crashing might be the best thing for it. (laughs) It's like, there's a, there's a, a, Herbie Fletcher one time time was in a trade show and, you know, he's got Astro Deck and he's, you know, there he's got a booth and everything. And he was saying, see all this around you. None of this is surfing, <laughs> you know, and I was like, 100%. that is a, that is very true. It's so on the nose. It's right in front of you. But you just get so conditioned to thinking like, I have to look like this. I have to portray that I'm part of this club or that club when nothing that has nothing to do with surfing. Yeah, it's uh, it's so funny you say that because I um, I got a, a big taste of that as far as when you I feel like when you're removed from the I guess the we- I don't even want to say the Western society, but when you're removed from like general population, so to speak, and you're on these little islands for any amount mm-hmm. of time and you see these people just existing and there's no like stickers. Nobody gives a shit like what you're representing or really it's just um they're in the water because that's just what they do. It's not necessarily mm. like trying to uh, support anything other than like literally feeding their friends, you know? Um, yep. And I got like my first taste of that last year or two years ago uh, where I was uh, down on some island, um, not, not off of Guam, but like you just, I don't know, you just spend enough time somewhere and you're like kind of. I like it's like a reset and it makes you realize in its purest form, this is what this is, you know? Yeah. And and it's amazing that like you really have to be on top of it and kind of auditing yourself. Like, why am I thinking this? Wait, is it because people have just always told me to think this way? Like it makes you realize that like, what is something like surfing to me? What, what's the first things that come to my mind? You know, is it, a certain look or a certain clothes or a certain way of surfing. Why is that? Oh, because I've been told that's what it's supposed to be. You know, it's right. those mental exercises I, are always interesting. I like them. Well, and I feel like even in the dive industry in the last five years, it's kind of morphed into like the surf industry has morphed more into the dive industry. And for me, I'm like, no, 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 get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. We just, we want our little niche. But, and I guess that kind of goes along with you're saying like the mom and pop store, right? Cause like that whole image is what drives the money machine. So it's mm-hmm. in their best interest to push that. Like, I mean, I, I really, the, the Rife company and the Rife people are some amazing people, so mm-hmm. friendly and gen, genuine. But I feel like they're like right in the middle of it. 
because they're so popular and they're trying to hold on to that like mom and pop feel, but it's getting big, but they're like still trying to hold on to it. So yeah, it's a, it's and, a, it's a tricky thing. Like, and, and also you have to think yeah. like, do I, there's no such thing as unlimited growth. You know, where, where's your happy place to be where you're still enjoying the work and making things that you're proud of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did this, I kind of went through that, uh, that inner dialogue a long time ago where I wanted to be like, I wanted to try to get on that big wave tour. And I was like, this is my goal. And I think it was like 20, I was in my twenties mm -hmm. and, uh, I was always going down to Totos or trying to find like just, and it got to a point where it was like, I'm not even enjoying this. Like, why, why do I, uh, why am I? <laughs> what is the point of all this? Like, I just want to surf, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and the it made me really would make it really easy because you know, you're not going to make money either. <laughs> like, right. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then it was like, uh, I just want respect from the community. And it's like, well, if you just surf the guy, well, everybody knows who they are. Like you all recognize the same faces, you know? So uh -huh. that'll take care of itself, you know? So, exactly. um, we, I mentioned Rife, but you're you're a member of the Rife team, correct? No, I'm just I've been using all kinds of stuff for the last two years or so, three okay. years. All right. Yeah, so I've just been doing a lot of experimenting for a while and just using a lot of like getting into roller guns and trying to figure those things out and just I I like like I said I don't like being in neutral or park I have to be moving forward so pretty much any given time I'm, I'm spearfish. It's rare that I go out for a dive, whether it's swimming from shore or off my ski or off a boat. Um, there's some aspect of my gear that's completely experimental for that day. Like I'm always trying new things where it's like rig a float this way, rig a stringer that way, try a different anchor for the tagline, uh, try a different gun, shorten the bands, lengthen the bands, different overhang with the shaft. It's, or a, a new and different gun, uh, just or even like how my knife is set up on my weight belt. I just am always trying to, which it can be frustrating. It's like I feel like right. I could have never really done that until like I ticked enough boxes spearfishing because I've always been so maniacal. Like as soon as we're going, I'm like, need to get in the water right now, right now, right now. And you just want to do it. But, you know, after you get to do enough things and you feel like you accomplished some things, you're like, you know, I'm going to spend some time either like trying to develop my gear or film or whatever it is. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of that, too, as well, like with the do it yourself stuff where it's like, how do I make better floats? Like, how do I like better and cheaper, like not kind of buy into the, a lot of the industry stuff because. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's nothing against the industry or anything. It's just that, like, I don't know, some part of me always wants to make something, like, bulletproof and, like, just make it better. Like, my friend um, who works for Camara uh, Spearfishing, like, they have that side slip. And mm -hmm. um, it's like, I don't know if you've seen it at all. Yeah, I've seen um, it. Yeah, and I, I, I took it down to Baja a few times this year, and he gave me a couple of them to use. And my buddies down in Guam, they were using them. And, uh, you know, people always want my opinion on it, but the thing about it is, uh, yeah, it works. It's pretty cool. But the more importantly for me, it's like the fact that someone took something 
thought about it, came up with an idea to try to make it better. Like I respect that so much, even if it didn't work at all, it's still, you're going to get there eventually one day. That's pretty awesome. You know? Yeah. I find it pretty interesting. Like there's, there's, well, no, no company makes everything the best. Like this company make, makes a fin blade that really works for you. This one makes a fin pocket. This one makes the gun that works for you. This one makes a better tagline. This one makes a better float. And uh, it's interesting. I think that um, certain when, when you look at it that way, there's certain expensive items that are totally worth the money. But I feel like where people are losing out on is that like mid-range kind of equipment that just craps out her breaks or or it's just not the best so you're like almost there to get a quality product didn't quite pull it off and then you're just dealing with a pain in the butt forever and then a fish of a lifetime comes in like the flopper shears off when you shoot (laughs) or something you know because you got a cheap shaft oh yeah um yeah or there's like basically a really cheap line inside your uh your float line snaps like a Mm -hmm. you know yeah, I've seen that firsthand, my buddy, which was kind of what led me to like build all my own stuff because I was like, I know that if I see the fish of a lifetime, I'm going to hit this thing and it's all up to me. I know my equipment's going to be good. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like too, when you start like messing around with your own stuff, you know your stuff so well and like it helps you just understand the whole process, the whole thing all together. Like I see people put like, oh, I've got 2000 pounds spectra. And I've got this and I've got that, but it's like, but you, then you have a, uh, you know, um, a crimp that fails or whatever at like a hundred, a hundred pounds. So it's kind of completely useless unless you have everything in that system. That's like beefed up, you know? Yeah. You can't get lazy about that. And the thing is, is like, I, I totally was, but I've had failures enough times that just stung so badly <laughs> that it. <laughs> Every time that happened, I got like more and more into my gear and checking things out. And still, man, I'd like, like a couple months ago, I shot a Wahoo that was probably, I had 400 pound test, a slip tip, everything. Um, and this thing ran and dragged my buoy a bit and the line broke and I, I didn't have anything left at the end. So it was like, it must've broke at the crimp where the loop was attached to the tagline. I'm like, I never, ever have crimp failures. I'm like, what happened did like a knife hit it on the boat or like i still have those things happen even when i'm careful right so it's all the more reason to be on it because if you're not careful it's gonna happen all the time yeah i actually had a really good conversation with chris coates last week and i talked to him a bit that guy's a wealth of information holy shit man like uh it totally changed the way i thought about a lot of stuff and the audio is not real great. And this isn't me pitching like my podcast at all. But there was some things where I was like, are you serious? Like, he's like, just if you have accuracy issues, um, you know, change your shaft first thing, just change the shaft and mm-hmm. see. And then he explains like slip tip versus, you know, flopper because he likes to shoot with a double double flopper. Mm. We, you know, and he makes fun of us California guys with our giant wooden guns and like, you know. <laughs> it's so bad man um and it's funny because it's i don't know any better because Uh it's just the way i was taught by my buddy who you know and um i'm okay with that but uh i'll tell you what it's 
um, when I was down, you know, in, in the tropics there, we were using just one tin, like hatch, you know, mm-hmm. just basic. I was like, wow, this is so easy. And it, doing that for like four months and then going back to some like monstrosity of a gun, you know, um, yeah. really changes your perspective for sure. That's why you got to use different gear. It's almost like you ever, you know, you have a beer you like and you're drinking it for a couple of weeks and you haven't had any other kind of beer. And then you go back to another one that you like before and it tastes totally different to you again and new like you need that like change of perspective even with your equipment and that's what's so interesting to me i've been lucky enough to travel around the world and spearfish in all kinds of places for last couple decades and so i got into like kind of like see completely different approaches and pick little things from them and like uh the tahitian spear fishermen man they're really good there's some interesting stuff that i've got up down there those guys are world class well with those guys too i heard just from talking to guys um same thing like with their diving techniques even like because you know we started diving for dog tooth on those currents and being from california like i tell everybody i am not a great free diver because where i live you don't have to be a great free diver everything's Uh right at the thermocline you know we're not punching like 90 foot dives to sit on the bottom of a reef like So I had to, in the last few years, I had to get much better at it because I was doing trips for work, like down to Guam and other places. Mm -hmm. And, um, but what I, but (laughs) what I learned was talking to the Tahitians and how they do it with the currents and all that. They'll have one guy, I don't know if you've seen this, but like one guy will put his his feet on another guy's shoulders while the guy breathes up and the other guy is kicking him to keep him in place. So the guy's totally relaxed when he's breathing up. And you're like, dude, that's fucking teamwork. Like, that's mm-hmm. impressive. And those guys are doing like past 100 foot dives. They're getting bent, I guess, during the inner. Uh, you might have been there, I guess, during the games. Um, what is it? The inner uh, Pacific Island games. Inner Pacific. Like, I think they some of the teach or one of the teaching guys got bent at one of the inner packs. And then when they had the World Championships years ago, which was right at Chopo, actually. Um, in Tahiti guys got bent. Yeah. It's like, so for some of the guys just starting out diving, spearfishing, thinking about you're holding your breath, but you're diving so much, so deep, you're still getting bent. Like that's, that's pretty gnarly. Um, and I know it can happen for in shallower water too, with other people like depending on repetitive dives, but like that was the first time I heard that. And, um, that definitely like, I'm like, I need to like pick these guys brains it's very humbling and uh, really interesting, those guys, some of the techniques they come up with, depending on the environment they uh, dive into. Yeah, and a big part of that is the history down there. So um, if you look at human free diving in general, it's it's the, the progress back in the day was basically due to like market demand and being able to make a living off the ocean. A common person, if they could learn how to free dive deeper than everybody else could access those murex shells in the Mediterranean. Um, they could access pearls like the murex shells created the purple dye that was for royalty. So it was, it was one of the best ways for a common fisherman to be able to climb a ladder that's otherwise, impossible to climb and get himself into a better financial situation so there's lots of motivation there and so while this was happening in the mediterranean it was happening also in french polynesia for pearls black pearls there as a currency and for 
the royalty. So they had been free diving besides just being a Polynesian voyaging culture in the all about the ocean. They had been free diving the great depths way longer than everybody else, except for in the Mediterranean. And then when, you know, the first masks and fins, I believe came out of France and then Japan, they had access to those things before we did in the United States because it's French Polynesia. So they have a giant leg up on the knowledge aspect besides like the fish behavior knowledge, which is generational. So it, it's really interesting and cool to look at it from that perspective and just learn when I'm down there. Well, I think, yeah, you bring up a good point because um, you've mentioned it twice. You referred back to Hawaiian culture and Tahitian culture. And, um, you know, I, I think the most underestimated thing, even in today's culture and being uh, a white dude living you know, on the uh, main, on the mainland, um, you, you got to know your history to understand how everything got to where it's going either, or right. You're bound to repeat it or you're just ignorant to what um, you can't really go forward if you don't know where you came from, I guess, is the bottom line. Exactly. And, and something that's so interesting is like we, we were talking before we got on about um, so these new big wave guns that I've been doing. I just posted something on my Instagram and they're really freaky looking. So this this board looks very different from a traditional surfboard. But all those aspects in there have been tried at other times, like have been tried in super experimental phases in the 70s and 80s with surfboard design, and they just kind of didn't take then. And it's the same thing with spearfishing. You're looking at roll, roller guns coming back, but roller guns have been around in Europe a long time. And how we were talking about stretch surfboards, quads, he brought quads to the forefront. He wasn't the guy who came up with quads. So I think right. if... You need to know that history to go back and find the things that didn't really catch because there's the odds that you're the first person to think of an idea because you are so smart are very low. That's what I've found for myself at least. So at least save some time by learning the history. Yeah, um, that happens at my job all the time. I joke around because I work with uh, kind of newer technology and stuff and it's uh, – I always joke around. I'm like, if one more motherfucker comes through that door and says he wants to do this for the first time, I'm going to lose <laughs> it on him. <laughs> it's going to be so disruptive. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, man. Like, come on. We did that six months ago. Like, did anybody brief you like before you came here? Like, come on, man. Yeah. We have um, a way of telling ourselves that we're more important and more brilliant than we actually are. For, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um yeah, the rollers thing, I, you know, we were talking about Chris Coates before, and like I talked to him about the rollers thing because he was working with MJK and all the the new roller thing. And then I built a roller um, because it just makes kind of sense as far as getting a longer band stretch, a longer stroke, like mm -hmm. a motor from a smaller range. And then, um, but then there's the other side of penetration and all that stuff. And you said you've been working with rollers. Like, what have you found like doing the roller thing? I I love the the technology. Um, I think it's not executed right in most guns. It seems like after kind of wrapping my head around it for a bit and using them, like I, it seems like a lot of people who are doing it, like it's not there. It's it's not where it should be. Um, it's not something that you can 
half-ass with like cheaper components and stuff like that. Even, even I was noticing on, on some guns, you know, just the actual roller wheel that's in there. It's like, why the hell did this thing, my gun was shooting like a laser and, you know, fast forward at six months and they keep shooting low left. What's the deal? What's the deal? Is it the shaft, change shafts, change lines? And then finally go and just take the rubber off and spin the rollers and one barely spins and the other one spins. So you're like, okay, they're pulling unevenly. Um, so like there's just these different factors. And, and I think that the, the concept is great. It's less recoil, more distance, shorter gun, easier to maneuver, um, easier to travel with a smaller gun. Um, but the execution of it has been really tough. And I've been messaging back and forth with Chris Coates, kind of like trying to troubleshoot things a lot because that guy is such a wealth of information. I actually just got into, um, he has a YouTube video about splicing hollow core spectra or Dyneema to make your shooting lines. So I got into that. I bought that stuff and I'm doing that on all my guns now. It's nice. You don't have a crimp anymore. Um, and you know, like your monofilament loop, always ends up getting warped and you know kicking off to a side weird after you shoot a few fish and you figure especially if it ends up your mono wraps up you got all these kinks there you know, like that has to affect the efficiency and flight of your shaft so i literally just ordered that line uh two days ago after talking to him uh yeah the hollow yeah <laughs> for that reason because i like to use dyneema too uh, mm -hmm. just because it was like a happy medium um, and I, I try to want to eliminate crimping or, or human error as least as possible, as much as possible. And the same thing with the roller guns where, um, my initial reaction was like, there's just a lot more shit to go wrong on my roller gun. So I try to keep it super simple because if you're in the middle of nowhere and something goes wrong, like now you're, you know, you might be able to jerry rig something up to where you can turn it into a traditional gun, but you know, it's a nightmare. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. <laughs> Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Yeah, yeah that's always so. my biggest fear because I travel so much and it's like you, I try to go to the furthest away places I possibly can. So I have to have stuff that I can fix. And that's always been my aversion to roller rollers that's why it took me like two years longer than it probably should have to start kind of taking a good look at it um but they're definitely getting there i mean like i have a aim right um 120 single roller which i've loved that gun it's super well balanced um i was looking at uh playing around with multiple band roller guns um the inverted roller or well i i had no, just not the inverted. Well, I haven't done the inverted roller. So this is like the next step in my stubborn way of thinking breaking down because um, okay. I got a bu buddy, um, Trevor Bacon. He's from New York, and we've done a bunch of uh, pretty awesome spearfishing trips like to Panama and Fiji and stuff and shooting big fish. And he's got the Alamanis. And um, I was like, dude, those things look so complicated. Like, how the hell are you going to fix it if something goes wrong? And I was like, would always make fun of him for it because it was just so much going on. It looks like you wouldn't be able to move this gun in the water with how much rubber is on it. 
And he's like, just try it, just try it. So on a, over a couple, the course of a couple more trips, I, I shot it a bit. And I was like, oh my God, this gun is absolutely amazing. So I just, I finally broke down and I'm like, I can't keep lugging a giant piece of lumber around the world because of weight restrictions. You're going to be able to bring less shafts with you. Um, and just the recoil of shooting a big gun. If I haven't shot a giant four band blue water gun in a long time, it takes me two days on a trip to like recalibrate how to aim with the thing and shoot with it to where now I, I just called up Alamani and was like, here you go, whatever, 2,700 <laughs> bucks. I'm, this is, I'm, I'm not, I'm not losing another giant fish again. If, yeah, it will I, be my, if I lose it. Yeah. Um, well, that it's funny because I my 60 inch one that I made the double roller like I didn't know shit other than reading a bunch of stuff about it, and I remember firing that thing on a dog tooth with one hand, which I would have never dreamed of, you know, with my regular wooden gun, and that thing's like a laser, and uh, that kind of sold me on that gun. The only issue with those guns is like loading it. It's like a two stage loading thing, so you're literally like flipping it over, loading it takes time, and once uh -huh. you load that thing. I find it does make you a more selective diver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know what I was, we, we started like timing each other, like how long it takes to load, like say one of the Alemani, like 135 Vela compared to like a, a rife blue water elite. And it, it actually takes about the same amount of time. And the thing is they're not, my friend wasn't beating himself up as much because you're not loading as much power every time. That's sort of where it's point. like, you know, you're like, everyone's hard. You got to get it up to your chest. That's he's hip loading it. Almost everything. And the only things that are chest loaded are when they're already on the, the sissy tab and you can just knock it right back easily. So that I, I realized that that was kind of a mental block of mine. And when we actually looked at the times, I was like, oh, man, it's about the same. That's a solid point, though, about the loading them. Uh, you know, as far as straining yourself every time, because I'm always like, sometimes my boat, I'm like the all-time loader for tuna, oh. for bluefin or whatever, just being taller so I can grab it and like, but I mean, you get welts on your body, you know, after a while. So yeah, that'd be nice. That's a good point. Um, yeah, it gets Yeah, I guess old. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. but, but you know what is a total pain in the butt about those uh, blue water kind of rollers is having that um, loading uh, hook that you put around your wrist. That thing oh. gets hot on everything. It's like it just pisses me off all day long. Even if I tuck it into my wetsuit, have it on my belt, it always comes out. And it's one of those little hook things that it's like it hooks on. Oh, it's on my tagline. It's on my shooting line. It's getting wrapped up in this or that. It just makes me crazy. The load assist you're talking about, right? Yeah, the load assist. Yeah. I just, when I made my gun, I designed it purpose, purposely so I don't have to carry extra that, that thing. So I was trying to like get the band length. So when I when I load it, I can reach it like where the where the second stage or the first stage is on the bottom, where basically the line release would be. I can put the band on that and still grab it and pull it back and then flip it over enough, uh -huh. so I don't have have to use one of those things because I hate having stuff on me diving. Like it's so counterproductive, and mm -hmm. I always have a at like a fear of getting stuck on the bottom, like something in there. I don't know what the hell it is, you know. Mm -hmm. anyways yeah well that kind of leads me you talk about traveling like where are some i mean some places you probably that your top like the coolest places you've been 
I know Guadalupe Island. You went to, I saw that footage a long time ago with Brandon. Mm -hmm. That was incredible. I guess from my own personal enjoyment, can you shed some light on that? How was that? Oh, Guadalupe was amazing. It's stressful though. <laughs> You're, it's not relaxing diving. That is for sure. But, um, yeah, we went there to help, um, myself and Brandon Wallers went there to help with this shark, great white shark documentary that was being filmed out there. Uh, this was some years ago and, uh, yeah, we ended up being able to spearfish there. Um, they kind of, they wanted a shot of a great white shark taking a tuna off a spear and not bothering the diver, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, um, which never happened. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it's an amazing, amazing place. Like, I wouldn't recommend it to people. It, I, I think you can only play that game for so long before something bad happens. And while we were there, we just kind of, me and Brandon were like, all right, we got to like make an agreement. You know, no diving before 9.30 a.m., no diving past 2 p.m. If Merc rolls in on the current, we're out of the water, things like that. But still, you're just head on a swivel and some, you know, dive in some of the deeper spots, you know, at a certain point in the water column, when you're halfway up, you can't see the bottom and you can't see the top and you just feel so vulnerable. And what I started doing, because you can't be looking everywhere at once. So I would just watch Brandon's body language on the surface. I'm like, man, if he gets jerky, I need to start looking around real fast because something showed up. Was that when he shot that world record yellow yellowtail, or that yep. was before that? Yeah, yeah. I, I watched him do it. He shot that fish right in front of me. I just <laughs> shot a, a tuna uh, yellowfin, probably like a 130-pound one, and uh, that was like a crazy fiasco to get that fish. I thought I was going to get killed by a white shark doing that. And then, um, yeah, I went back, got, got it on the our little – we had like an 8-foot inflatable dinghy, and um, – and then those yellowtail came in and he, he blasted it. I was like, that fish would have been so much bigger too. It was so skinny. It had spawned out and it had zero food in his stomach. It was like absolutely empty. So uh, for it to weigh that much, even that skinny was pretty crazy. It probably should have been about six pounds heavier. Yeah. I can't even imagine, um, I mean, I know what it's like to see bigger fish than you're used to, like species. I can't imagine what his mindset was like. He's down there and it's like, you just do one of those double takes. Like, is that a yellowfin tuna or is that a, or, you know, a, a, a yellow tail? Like that thing is massive. Actually, you know what? That, that yellow, because we had tuna coming around and there's kind of a lot of big yellow tail around, although this one was a lot bigger than the rest. That fish was with two others. And it had already swam past us like three times before he decided to shoot it. So it was kind of like, oh, you're wow. still around. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it's um, kind of the opposite, which is funny because it swam right under me. And I was like, I just got this tuna. I don't know. And then he shot it. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't even think I think you're not you're not even allowed to dive there anymore, though. Um, I think That's they, what I heard. Uh, Mexican government. Yeah. But there's other places that I kind of have my eye on too this year. Until this ban gets lifted, I'm gonna bounce and try to check it out. But um, I also remember reading like I, I don't know which one of you, but I think because uh, I've 
discovered this for myself, but the the sharks, they were so selective. If you shot like a yellowtail, they wouldn't go for the yellowtail. But as soon as you shot a tuna, they would blast the tuna. Was that is that true? Yeah, it's they didn't like yellowtails. <laughs> good. They, even even That's the good. bait around bait around the boat. If you you caught them on a sabiki and you you brained one and threw it in the water, the sharks loved those. They'd come up and eat those little snacks, but they never liked yellowtail. That's so interesting. I, have you seen that elsewhere as well? Like when you travel? Um. Yeah, sharks will be. Uh. Like, for instance, you know those uh, red bass that you would see down in that Guam kind of Marianas area, the one with the white spot by its tail? They have uh-huh. cigatera a lot, um, so it's like a big red snapper. Um, yeah, sharks yeah. usually don't mangrove like eat. snapper, they, yeah. It's not the mangrove snapper because the mangrove uh-huh. snapper is actually good eating. The other one is like the most cigatera-ridden fish in the ocean, apparently. <laughs> But the sharks. Don't I think it's like Tagafi. The Chamorros call it Tagafi. I think. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I, I think I, I know what you're talking about. They're massive, yeah. and we're like, why are they so big? Because nobody eats them. Like. Yeah, and they got big teeth, and they'll they'll be the first to show up if you chum, and they'll just sit down there and eat all of your chum. Um, but yeah, the sharks don't really. They got to be desperate or in a really competitive feeding mode to even touch that. I, I learned that it was a waste of time to chum that because even the doggies, dog tooth tuna won't give them the time of day either. Um, I guess they just know. Rainbow runners, though, on the other hand, like Every, everybody found rainbow, rainbow runners. runners. <laughs> it's terrible, man. <laughs> So where else have you been that you kind of like plan to go back to or Fiji? You mentioned Fiji or, you know, just anywhere like particular that you really enjoyed personally. I I mean, I love Fiji, love French Polynesia. Both of those places I probably spent a year at each collectively throughout my life. So just have a lot of great friends and they're amazing places. And there's just so many islands you can explore forever. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I want to go everywhere. I'm actually something that I've been thinking of because I have some great friends in um, like Northern Africa. I thought that would be a pretty cool spearfishing trip to do. And we'll see as my, this YouTube channel that I'm launching the next, next week, um, if it progresses, you know, I can go and do those trips and, and uh, hopefully bust out some good content for people. Where, what part of Northern Africa um, if you don't region, I guess. I mean, that whole like Morocco, uh, Sahara area uh, is interesting. I mean, the water doesn't get very clear or anything, but it's just so different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, fortunately, like, cause I've been, a, I was a military contractor for a long time and you would go to these places where, uh, nobody really goes to for whatever reason just kind of rare you end up somewhere and uh it was cool because being a diver i'm like dude nobody's been here like i want to check this out and half the time you didn't have any of your stuff with you um but i know like a few places where it was like holy shit like this is the fishiest place and they've never seen a diver before in their life um it's just not the safest place to be you know (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but they are out there um 
Yeah, I, they are. I was like, I did it this morning. I did it this morning where I was like, I was looking at uh, America Samoa for surfing and like diving. I was talking to a friend about that. And then I look, there's a little atoll and it's like, how do you get to these places? I imagine you got to jump in on these places and there's probably a giant grouper in every hole, you know? Oh yeah. And that, but the interesting thing is, is when you're like going and looking for locations, especially in the South Pacific is that there's so many illegal long line fleets and, and people who come from Asia and even other places in the, in Micronesia and stuff. And when they show up to islands, they take everything. Like they, they take all the sharks, they take all the, all the fins, they take all the turtle eggs, they take every starfish to dry and sell for to be in your candle from Bed Bath and Beyond. They take every coconut crab off the island. Like they literally come in and devastate these areas. So I have been to places that are super remote and you're like, this should be amazing, and it's not. So it's like trying to figure out where those little gray areas are to where it doesn't make there's enough of like infrastructure in that country at that area to have it patrolled every now and then um or if it just doesn't make sense because of fuel cost for them to go to these places but then you know there's a reason why they don't go and hit it it's hard to get to and it's time consuming and you got to figure it out so it's never easy to find those those zones that's the best part though is like because it's not easy i don't know i get a big satisfaction out of that stuff you know um like you saying, though, it's crazy because I remember being in places and I, I pull up my marine traffic app and you zoom out and you're in the middle of nowhere. and You zoom out and it's all Asian like fishing boats or like all around the island. And, um, you, you know, it's like what you're saying, like the more you get involved in stuff, you realize and, and it goes back to your first thing about equipment and teaching people to enjoy the ocean. And I have something on my website, too, where it's like. I want to enhance people's enjoyment in the ocean so that they too can care about it. Because when you have a good time in the ocean, like you do, and you're traveling all these places, you get wise to the fact of like, what's normal, what's not, what's the issues. And other than just kind of have your head in the sand because you don't know, cause you're naive, but like yeah. you go to these places and you realize like, dude, this is really messed up. Like this is, nobody knows about this. Like, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy, and you get you get angry about it, and that makes you want to do something. Yeah, no, that's that's actually why I asked you know about the conservation stuff because uh, we're we have a project going on right now. I won't spill the beans quite yet, but um, it's all based on conservation. Um, but like it, from a, from an educated standpoint, not a political mm. agenda, because you know some of those things are so political too, like. I talked to Daniel Mann about this too, and he, uh, offline, and he was like, as far as the science goes, like that's kind of a joke because like the guys doing the research never even spent a day in the water them li- their lives, and they're just going off of sample size and oh, yeah. you know, and they have no idea. He's like, we dove on one spot and there was not a fish, and the the scientist, the lead scientist, is like, this is dead. We went back at high tide. He's like, well, let's go dive the same spot at high tide. Like, hold on. And so they did it like at um, golden hour at night and it was loaded with sharks and fish and everything. And he's like, and these are the people that are making these, you know, these decisions or passing this data off to make decisions on things. And they don't know what the hell they're doing. Completely. So that's kind of like what. Yeah. Yeah. And even like some of the uh, science, 
conservation or marine sciences, things I've been involved with, it's, it's just so funny because somebody will be like, have spent years gathering data and trying to figure out how to prove something that you could ask any person in that village or in that fishing town, everybody already knows it. So why are you spending all this time and resources trying to prove something that everybody already friggin' knows already? You should have just went and talked to somebody and found out what they don't even know and started at that point. But it's like, it's such a weird game with grants and trying to get money and, you know, egos at play, even in the conservation and scientific community that things get convoluted really fast. And that's why I, I kind of always was interested in the idea of like, you know, you find those people who have the edu education, the credentials, the know-how, um, and connect them with the, the capable people within like the, the ocean spearfishing, fishing communities. And like, I think those groups that, that are kind of overlapping of the two circles on the, in the chart, those are going to be the most effective. That's, that's kind of what we're working on on to and and going along that lines i have friends that are professors in marine science and they're spear fishermen and it's like dude you don't understand what a powerful person you are because you know what the hell is going you know you have the total package that's like essential um yeah it's it's a it's an interesting time because it's becoming more and more prevalent uh for example here in southern california they closed all the recreational fishing um which I'm not against closing things if you have a plan to reopen it. Like, it's it's cool. I'll go, you know, the bigger picture, I get it. Like, I'll go shift my behavior and dive this spot. Um, but when you close things to close things and you don't have a plan how you're going to reopen them up or you don't have a – like, that's what I have a problem with. Like, because, for example, for us, it's uh, La Jolla has been closed off forever. Cool. It's a marine place. Cool. It's loaded with fish. It's a great place to introduce kids to the ocean because you have all these giant calico bass and everything. It's cool. But if they were ever going to reopen that and close another area, I can't imagine the massacre that would happen <laughs> if they reopened that place because you'd have all these fish get wiped out in a matter of weeks because they have no you know, generations of not learning how to, mm -hmm. you know, a diver is not a good thing, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And I think um, there's a real danger in how a lot of people want to do kind of have like these blanket policies. Like it's so location specific, um, you know, based on how much population there there is there, based on how, how much currents. Like if it's a place that's sweeping a lot of current so a lot of fertilized egg from that protected population to other areas then maybe it is worth permanently keeping you know closed because it is helping uh regenerate populations in places where people can take fish but it's like these stupid rules that are just kind of blanketed um i mean that's where we need more cooperation um, in between like the recreational subsistence and scientific community is we make sure that the rules make sense because I, for the most part, we probably want fish around more than anybody else. But right. it's also within our community. It's like we have to regulate our own community because there's a lot of people that make us all look bad. All, all it takes is a couple of uh, ding dongs doing stupid stuff. So it's like we can't give people 
on a reason to discredit right. us. You know, and I think I think that needs to be taken a lot more seriously within like the spearfishing community. Yeah, that was one of the things I tried to do um, with. I posted something on Instagram where it was like a sheep's head, and I fortunately have the luxury of my job kind of helps out my recreational activities. So like, I know where all these little reefs are, these little you know uh, artificial reefs or whatever, and I'll dive on them. And it's such a small, small population of fish where you take one fish out, it could have a drastic impact. So um, I usually I shot a sheep's head, which um, they that has a big impact on a reef because it affects the whole population. Whatever I did a big write up on it, but basically like the understanding more about the fish you're taking and understanding your impact on what you do, you've got to understand that. You you need to understand. Okay. If I do this, what is the impact going to be in order to like, we just can't be, um, I guess as much shit as we talk about conservation, we can't be the one to be like conservation, check out this gigantic, like, um, <laughs> you know, whatever fish, like, mm-hmm. uh, like I saw a, a probably like a 10 pound sand bass the other day, not a big deal. Like that's a big deal. 10 pound sand bass at that same spot. And I didn't shoot it because I thought about that exact thing. This fish lays exponentially more eggs than any other of these, you know, smaller fish. Do I feel like a douchebag, basically, if I say, conservation, check out this one that I just took out, like this, you know. Um, And And again, it's a a bottom fish, right? Yeah, and it comes down to people taking the time to educate themselves on um, fish species and life cycle, which is like, it's going to help you become a better hunter because you're going to know the behaviors better. Um, It's going to make your whole experience more interesting because you have more knowledge about the the species. But also it's like, okay, yeah, if I took this fish from this area, like I'm not going to take another one from this area for months, you know? Like, oh, okay, I see some juveniles that are coming up that are, like, right almost to the level of this guy. So I'll leave it for months, and there's going to be a bunch of them. Um, so that's kind of thing. And, like, rotating spots. I just try to really rotate spots as much as I can and not beat anything up too bad, which I don't take that much anyways, usually, unless it's a there's a baby luau or a wedding or a funeral, then you kind of right. take more than usual. Yeah. Um so kind of moving on, kind of wrap things up, I guess. I don't want to take any more of your time. Uh, but do you have any tips for uh, like beginners, intermediate, and advanced divers, like different tips for like different levels? Because I know on the Aki podcast, you said something about when you reach your plateau, you need to start doing some body work. And I was curious um, what exactly like diaphragm stretches, like specifically what body work were you talking about? Yeah, I mean, once once I – Personally, I can talk about what has helped me because I definitely plateau and I see uh, a, a certain range of diving to where like I, I start losing the endurance. So it's like, especially like the deeper dive days, you know, you do X amount of dives over a hundred feet in current and I, I get kind of burnt and I can see my, my dive times going down and down and down. And then I just move into shallower water. But, um, yeah, that, that flexibility so it's like those diaphragm stretches 
um, those lung stretches, all that stuff that comes from the strictly free dive community, yoga, big help. And then just like your cardio. Cause I got like little baby chicken legs. I got the full surfer build. <laughs> so like it, there's my muscles not efficient enough right now. Like I have to go and do more bike riding, more running and stuff like that. Like you, bulk isn't going to help you, but having the, your muscles able to process out that lactic acid more efficiently is going to help a lot. Um, and diet helps for a lot of people. My buddy, um, Justin Lee from over on big Island, like one of the best divers in the world for sure. He's, he's really, really good. Um, and good with the deep stuff too. Um, he's been working with, uh, a scientist about the diet aspect of it and just tracking his improvement. And he keeps showing me his stuff and, um, his, performance is getting way way better and you know that he's like another good example of a guy who's who really knows where like his plateau limit is because he's put pushed it for so long that he knows like okay something has to change to get my performance past this point so um he's seeing a lot of benefit from the diet aspect he has a different metabolism than me he's a bit of he's a monk seal i'm a skinny guy <laughs> so i don't know if the diet's gonna affect me as much okay but, yeah but those are things to look into <laughs> no it's it's funny uh yeah i i have my plateau i know what it is and it's like i was curious because i found out for me it was like okay diaphragm stretches lung stretches anytime i go you know past 75 feet like i have a tendency to get uh, throat squeezes or whatever. And it was because it's kind of new to me to go past that depth and start going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and, uh, I am not very flexible at all. I was a college football player. Like, I don't know. I just never stretch until as I've gotten older, I realized too, stretching is a necessity if you want to keep doing the things that you want to do that you like to do. So mm-hmm. I was, yeah, I wanted to get your input on the, on this stuff you know you're a pretty deep diver um yeah but, it's like uh, you gotta drop that that dumb freaking idea kind of the way we were talking about surfing in in that like you have to look like a different style or, or a certain style and wear certain clothes and you think that's surfing it's not it's the same thing it's like so it's way different now but so many guys are like yoga i'm not doing yoga i'm like yeah go go in that class see that grandmother go rule you you'll be quivering yeah. like like a bitch <laughs> And there will be a 75-year-old grandmother absolutely dominating you. Like, yoga helps everything. It it does. I, I, I you know, we would, I would go overseas for months at a time, and, like, we would lift, and all the meetings is, like, very alpha male-centric, like, society, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, and I'd start to lift, and then I realized, like, I'm not, you know, 20 anymore, and, like, why the hell do I want to put all this weight on me? And I get back, and I can't, can't even surf. Um, or paddle because I feel like a, a goddamn gorilla. Um, and so I went back another time overseas and it was like, okay, I'm going to do yoga. As embarrassing as I will be, I'm going to do yoga and try it. And what I found is all those little aches and pains when I did yoga went away. Like literally like I could still do all the, you know, the, the tempo of working out that I like to do. But, um, I mean, obviously I changed the way I work out. I don't try to lift heavy or any of that stuff anymore. I just want it for, for diving. I just want mm-hmm. conditioning, you know? Um, but yeah, yoga totally changed my life. Uh, I'm not good at it at all, 
but I know when I have anything that's irritating me, I just go do some stretches and a little thing. Um, and, uh, it changes your life for sure. Hands down. Um, yeah, especially for the older guys that want to keep doing the stuff like they were doing when they're younger, you got to do yoga for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah. So do you have any future plans for this, uh, this year? Um, God, kind of playing everything by ear right now. Um, yeah, yeah, just working on projects and as far as like creating more videos and content, um, I'm going to start collaborating on, uh, some products and things like that. Um, so yeah, there, I, I can definitely keep myself busy besides that. I would love to take my bow and get outer Island once things calm down. Um, and Go get some access to your meat. Oh yeah, I've and, heard about uh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Right on. That's the big plans. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, again, Mark, uh, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share some of your stuff with me um, and the rest of us. Uh, super humbled to be talking to you. Always looked up to you, um, even as I'm older than you, I think. But I remember like <laughs> watching you paddle out. Uh, in between one of the heats at pipe when I think I was a teenager and I was like, who's that kid? Like there's a kid paddling a pipe. And I think it was even you. I don't remember. This is years ago. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I think you might've been 12 or something. I don't know. Um, Could have been. and then, you know, yeah, seeing that and like, it really changed my perspective being a California kid and seeing like overhead waves. Wow. And then seeing guys like you go out and charge and then, um, you know, and then fast forward, 20 years later that wave you caught out of Puerto Escondido was probably that was insane 40 foot beach break I mean come on man that was, <laughs> that was awesome. a scary day well thanks man yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it no it's it's awesome I love what you're doing keep doing it it's awesome and it's unique and uh it's a real gift I think to all of us that love the water all the watermen out there you're a great example of what to look up to so thank you man I appreciate it Thanks. I really appreciate it and keep up the good work on this and, and kind of uh, connecting the spearfishing community and, and, and talking about things. And that's what, just what I'd say is like, you don't have to fit into some mold. You don't have to do some goofy picture with your fish when you shoot it and pour a beer down its throat and like, try to be like everybody else, like enjoy it for what it is, do things your way. Um, and just try to spread knowledge and get other people excited and introduced to the ocean and, and give back because we can't just keep taking. There has to be aspects of giving back. Got to achieve balance, you know, but, uh, enjoy awesome. the water. People. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point, man. It's all about that. So thank you, Mark. That concludes our episode for today. Uh, again, I'd like to thank Mark for, uh, being on the show and if you guys want more information about Mark, check out his YouTube channel that he's starting up and check out him at HealyWaterOps.com. Also, if you want more information just on Spear Factor, check out the website as well. There's some how-tos and a fish guide on types of fish that we see here in Southern California and uh, also throughout the world and tips and techniques on how to hunt them. All right, so have a great rest of the week, guys. Pursuing wild game in wild places. 
Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.